This is the 189th episode of the podcast titled Revolution Z. My name is Michael Albert, and this time we're continuing the sequence called Ruminations. Uh, this is a sequence of episodes in which I basically ruminate. Uh, that is to say, I don't prepare an outline or a fixed agenda, much less write up the whole thing. I just wing it. This is a bit strange for me, but it turns out on looking at some stats that uh, those of you who listen to Revolution Z seem to like these ruminations uh, as much or indeed more than the more carefully prepared sessions. So I'll keep doing them at least for now. Uh, So what's on the agenda for today? Well, the agenda is being created as we speak. So Something that is in my mind, and probably in a lot of your minds, is what we might call the resurgence of socialism. The use of the term all over the place, the uh, polls which show uh, favorable ratings for socialism, uh, positive reactions to it, and so on. And so we have this kind of resurgence of attention to, and even advocacy of, socialism. And it seems to me this has some possibly good and possibly not so good ramifications. On the good side, obviously, um, not only does it remove uh, the ability of people to claim, ah, you're a socialist, you're worthless, that's been seriously diminished. And likewise, awareness of economy, awareness of class, awareness of ownership has been seriously enlarged. I think the resurgence of socialism owes a tremendous amount to Bernie Sanders' campaigns uh, and calling himself a democratic socialist, and subsequently others uh, like AOC doing the same, and to the growth of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. So on the good side, we have an opening up of, of avenues of discussion and advocacy that were very difficult to pursue at various times in the past. But on the not-so-good time, we do have a kind of amorphousness or watering down or making fuzzy what the word actually means. So while for some socialism means uh, an economy in which you get rid of private ownership of means of production, you get rid of capitalists, it's post-capitalist, and then you go on from there. For others, it means... Not just that, but also that you eliminate class division per se, that you get rid of a hierarchy of classes in which one rules others. But for others, it doesn't really mean either of those things. It rather means that the government uh, intervenes in economic life in positive ways for working people. So we can call that social democracy, if you like. And if socialism comes to mean that, well... Okay, so be it. But that would mean that those who want getting rid of private ownership, much less getting rid of class division and class rule, would have to begin to attach themselves to another term uh, so that when they say they're socialist or when they say they favor socialism, people wouldn't misinterpret that to mean that they favor, you know, an active government that intervenes on the side of of the poor and the uh, weaker constituencies in society. All right, at the same time that this has happened, there's also been, I think related, 
a resurgence of interest in Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky at all. Um, It's related because obviously they were early socialists and prominent socialists and very uh, productive socialists in the form of writings. And what you see now is a resurgence of uh, looking at their writings and reading groups and so on. And I wonder, what sense does that make? So, if I'm a historian of anti-capitalist movements, let's say, and I want to understand their trajectory over time, well, then it makes a lot of sense. Or if I'm a historian of ideas, say, and I want to see where these ideas uh, may have emerged or may have been first formulated or adapted, then again, it makes sense. But what if I'm an activist? What if I'm somebody who wants to intervene in the world around me in a positive way that moves us toward, now let's put socialism in quotes, moves us toward something beyond capitalism, perhaps we're satisfied with even just social democracy retaining capitalism, or perhaps we're satisfied with getting rid of the ownership relations and uh, moving on from there without too much clarity about what else, or perhaps we are are in favor of a set of institutions which not only eliminate private ownership, but eliminate the rise of a class in the place of those owners, new bosses in the place of old bosses. If we're that, if we are intent upon that kind of change, what does it convey to go back and look at Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky, even if we do it in a very flexible way? And I'm not sure that that's what is going on, but let's say we do. Well, the question arises, what do we find in those writers, or in their activities for that matter, that bears upon our desires? Well, now I'm going to leave behind the social democracy desire and the desire to simply get rid of private ownership and whatever will be will be, and take up this issue, this question, from the point of view of those who want a society in which in the economy, people self-manage. There's no class division. There's no class rule. There's equity. There's solidarity. There's self-management. There's a new set of institutions which deliver those, those goods. Well, then what, what do we get from looking back at these writers? Well, on the good side, we get to see how someone who is against capitalism and who's against private ownership and who's against private accumulation thinks about various things that Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky thought about. And we get to look at their thought patterns and to try and understand them and, where useful, uh, learn the methodology, so to speak, the methods of thinking. And reading groups might facilitate that. But then we have to ask, is there a downside to this? And I think there's two, actually three different downsides. The first one is, that regarding class itself, when we look at those writers and we read them and we get into reading groups and we discuss them, if we're trying to understand them as compared to the world, if we're trying to become facile with their words, so to speak, instead of facile with thinking about the world around us, I think that regarding class, there's a big problem. And that is that overwhelmingly the attention uh, of these writers and of their works and of their practice 
elevates the problem of getting rid of private ownership, not just to a priority, not just to an important position, which I think is absolutely justified and correct, but to really the priority, the focus of attention. Everything else should be understood in terms of implications for class. And it isn't implications for class per se. It's implications for the relations between workers, the working class, those who, in this formulation, sell their ability to do work to the owning class, the capitalists, who buy that ability and who own property and who amass profits. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is that the attention that's given to that goes beyond giving attention to that to take, te- take attention away from another direction. The other direction that it takes attention away from is what I would call a division between those who are empowered and those who are disempowered by their position in the economy. Now, if this is important, then its absence is important. Marx actually said in, in, in one of his many brilliant formulations, that if you want to understand an intellectual framework, you should look at what it leaves out. You, should, you shouldn't ask the purveyors of it what their goals are and what they want, uh, because that might be a bit, bit biased and a bit bent, and even not necessarily self-conscious. But you look at what's left out. And if you find something that's left out that's very significant, well, then you probably have to ask why. And the thing that seems to me to be left out of the class analysis of Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky is the importance of empowered versus disempowered work, of the emergence of a class that's empowered and a class that's disempowered, what I'll call the coordinator class and the working class, in addition to, and capitalism, the owning class. So in capitalism, there's a class between labor and capital, a class between workers and owners. But beyond capital, if you go beyond capitalism, if you are post-capitalist, presumably you get rid of private ownership. So you get rid of owners, capitalists. And in some formulations, that means what you have left is workers. And the only problem is figuring out how workers uh, in that new situation impact on society. But what if there are really two classes still left, one workers and one coordinator? And what if the real task here is not to figure out how workers uh, impact social relations and the economy on their own, but to figure out how to get rid of a coordinator class that will dominate them, that will dominate and determine the outcomes for the economy? I don't want to go into great detail about the history of all these various viewpoints and the like, but you can see, I think, that if we think there's a third class between labor and capital, and if we think that class can become a ruling class, then it certainly deserves a lot of attention. And that we don't find in these early purveyors of anti-capitalist perspective. So that, I think, is one serious problem, which can be remedied by instead of looking at people who wrote a long, long, long time ago and are long, long, long since dead, even ignoring the practice, say, of Lenin and Trotsky, which makes the situation even worse, 
But instead of looking at that, why not look at what has happened since? You know, the virtue of a framework, of an intellectual school of thought, let's call it, of an idea even, is partly its ability to understand whatever its focus is, but it's partly its ability to engender ongoing insight, ongoing innovation, ongoing thoughts. Well, so if the early formulations of Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky had virtue beyond just understanding a part of what was going on at the time, then they would engender new innovations, new thoughts, new insights in the years since. And it would make sense for us uh, nowadays to be looking at that far more than looking at the origins. This is true of any science. You don't study in physics Newton's Principia unless you're a historian of thought. A, a, a historian of science. You, you study the up-to-date frameworks and formulations and methodologies associated with the topic. In that case, mechanics, the, the motion and the and dynamics of, of bodies. And you, and you even get to, to not just uh, see innovations in how that's handled, insights and methods that go beyond what was available at the outset, but you also see problems which are overcome or which are raised and indeed overcome. So you see the emergence of new frameworks uh, which supersede the old. And if we read Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky and we read them, well, let me, let me get to the second problem before we get to this third point. The second problem that I want to suggest exists in going back and reading those fellows and reading other materials from the day, is that while it elevates class to importance, which is valid and true, it not only, I think, looks at class too narrowly, only in terms of ownership relations, not also in terms of the division of labor and empowerment, but it also so elevates those that it does a, a very poor job or often no job at all, in understanding other phenomena, which while affected by economics, also affect economics. And here I'm sure that you, you can guess that what I'm talking about is uh, race, ethnicity, uh, community relations of various thoughts, uh, gender, sexuality, kinship, and other relations of various thoughts, and even the state. All of these are seen as manifestations of and impacted by economics and is important only insofar as they keep workers from uniting. Only is too strong a word, but overwhelmingly. And nowadays we know that that's just insufficient, that these other parts of society have their own intrinsic dynamics. They're not just products of economics. They have their own intrinsic dynamics, and they create divisions among people. And those divisions, like class divisions, are profoundly important, and they impact the economy just as the economy impacts them. So what happens, I think, when we go back to brilliant writers from the past is that we're going back, and we're sort of going back, 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 past insights. We're leaving behind insights in order to be good at formulating and presenting um, the, the words of these forebears. Okay, the, the next or the third big problem, I think, 
sometimes present, sometimes not, is that it almost becomes, I suppose you could call it, a kind of identity politics. What do I mean by that? Well, politics, how do I put this? Suppose, suppose you're asking how people should approach thinking. Well, we should be objective. We should look at evidence. We should reason about it. We should be open-minded. All of this is pretty obvious. Okay. But then how do you become an advocate? How do you become somebody who's part of a, of a, uh, of a movement and who's, who advocates that movement and who works for that movement and who wants to see that movement succeed or even just a campaign? Do you, do you shuffle away from objectivity and move toward a kind of, of shall we say, more religious approach? a more accepting, less critical approach. Well, yeah, that does often happen. And it happens, I think, here I'm going out on a limb. I suppose a lot of listeners will think I've been out on a limb since I started this. But in any event, it happens, I think, when people in said movement or campaign or whatever lose track of the necessity for continually checking what they're doing. They become let's call it less humble, uh, in the face of the complexities of life, and they start to assume they have the answers. And that they, it's not just that they think they have the answers, they have the answers. And so, uh, you know, disagreeing with them is disagreeing with truth. And that tends to happen, I think, when people wrap their identities up in a particular framework or even a particular person who one might be following. And it's not very different from identity politics in those respects, in which you wrap yourself up in a particular identity. It's understandable. It's, I mean, you do, you do have that identity, but you protect that identity with such energy and such um, vigilance, I suppose, that you sort of leave behind paying attention to evidence and paying attention to, to even logic and uh, instead uh, trot out no pun, trot out what the, what the viewpoint says. It's interesting, an a economist, a, a woman, um, now i got to think up her name. That's one of the problems with ruminating. Um, maybe it'll come to me in a little while. But she's a famous female economist, brilliant. And one day she's at lunch, and she's there with a, another person. And the person asks, what distinguishes you from a Marxist? Because this, this particular uh, female woman economist was highly attuned to issues of class, highly attuned to issues of income distribution, highly attuned to issues of alienation, and so on. And so the person asked, what distinguishes you? And she thought for a minute, and she said, well, you know, we could get into some kind of details, but I think the real distinction is different from that. The real distinction that I feel is that when somebody asks a Marxist, say, about um, uh, a particular uh, issue that arises in Marxist economics. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what the issue is. When somebody asks the Marxists about issue X, the, the Marxist thinks for a minute, and the Marxist says, well, in volume three of Capital, Marx said such and such. Whereas I take out a napkin and work it out. And if I find out that what Marx said in Capital in Volume 3 of Capital doesn't make sense to me, so be it. I don't start with the premise that what's in this classic volume 
whether it be Marx, Lenin, or Trotsky, is right, and is right for all time. So what we have is a different approach, which is trying to retain attention to evidence, attention to logic, uh, objectivity, if you will, and yet simultaneously be an advocate. Advocate things, but not advocate in such a way as to preclude the possibility that what one is advocating may be false, and one has to listen, and one has to hear, and one has to test it. One has to even try and find its faults, rather than always trying to argue its behalf. So what we get is sectarianism. And so I think, or I fear, uh, a possibility here. Just as with the resurgence of socialism, possibly good, turning attention to the importance of private property, private ownership, possibly not so good, perhaps mixing up the word socialism in such a way that we no longer even know what it means. So is it the case, I think, that the resurgence of, say, Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, et al., um, in reading groups and so on, classics from the old days, let's call it, um, has a good aspect. Um, You know, it's intellectually stimulating. They're brilliant writers, generally speaking. They... um, although not always as far as reaching the broadest possible audience, which is another problem. But at any rate, um, and we we can see their thoughts about things going on in their time, and that's, you know, that's consequential. But the downside is the twofold problem of, I think, uh, getting stuck in a perspective um, which sees a two-class situation where there should be uh, seen a three-class situation, stuck in a perspective which then doesn't really understand the post-capitalism that has emerged from this tradition as still being a class economy, as still being an economy that's dominated by a ruling class, except now coordinator class. Uh, and and the, you know, the over-elevation, not elevation because class is profoundly important, but the over-elevation of it to the exclusion of treating other facets of social life, in particular race, gender, and power, in, with essentially the same degree, the same level of priority, and the same level of looking for sources of problems and thus possible solutions. Okay, so is there a different approach then to exploring theory, strategy, and vision? I think so. I think at the risk of being called a, uh, you know, anti-intellectual or something, as if the only thing that's intellectual is something from 100 years ago, um, is that we more or less skip the classics unless we are historians of movements or historians of ideas. If we're activists and we're trying to change the world, we don't need to go back to that because since then there has been lots and lots of work and insight which, in fact, goes beyond and varies from and is more suited to trying to understand the present. We learn frameworks, we learn perspectives, we learn theory, we learn strategic insights, we learn uh, visionary ideas, but we don't quote them as gospel. We don't treat them as scripture. We treat them as currently proposed thoughts, currently proposed insights, which we hope are valid, but which we continually test. We advocate them, 
but we do not identify with them in a way that makes us defensive about them. It's a different approach, even without talking about the actual substance of the difference. Okay, so one group, and there are others, um, which I think takes this sort of attitude about theory, vision, and strategy is called Real Utopia. And it's an organization that's been formed to try and advocate. It does have a particular perspective, flexible and still evolving, to be sure, probably always evolving, which is different, which uh, elevates race, gender, class, power, all to priority, investigates the intersection of them all, um, the way in which each creates conditions that modify the others, that takes a three-class view to what's primary in the economy, and so on and so forth. And so you might think to yourself, and this, this has come up when I have discussions like this with people who identify with, say, Marxist uh, ideology, let's call it, or Marxist heritage. And I will say to them, but what is it that you identify with? You don't identify with, say, you know, what emerged in the Soviet Union or what emerged in these various, call them experiments, with how to reorganize an economy and a society. Uh, by and large, you don't seem to like those, I think for very good reason. I don't either. So what is it that you, that you actually identify with and sort of um, feel a degree of allegiance to, I guess you could say? And I think it varies with various individuals. Some will say, capital, volume one. Some will say, you know, what is to be done? Some, some will give some, something like that. And some will say the courage to resist, the recognition of problems in society, the inclination uh, not just to understand the world but to change the world. And I say fine. But then we have to ask, what does perusing and exploring the um, formulations of Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky and others, written at a time and in a language which is not like now, written at a time and in a language which is not familiar with and hasn't undergone the changes that have happened since, give us that we don't get by paying attention to what's going on now, and even just by thinking at this stage, because the positive insights of their views have long since become part of common knowledge, common understanding, at least among people who aren't literally blinded to the way society works. And I find that they have a very hard time answering that question. What reading Capital or reading six different books by Lenin and Trotsky and so on and so forth is going to add to the arsenal of thoughts and insights and so on that they can use as activists, which are not readily available far more quickly and far more easily in far more modern formulations, which indeed go beyond what's in those early ones anyway. And I'll ask that to you, my audience. Uh, if some of you are in a reading group, reading Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, whatever, and you feel that you are coming up with stuff in there, you're finding stuff in there, you're penetrating that rather thick morass of, of uh, communications and coming away with insights that are critical to informing what's going on now and aren't already commonplace now. I'd like to hear what those are. All right, a new topic. Another virtue of this whole heritage is 
important now because I think there's another trend going on now, which is very troubling, which is a trend toward individual solutions in place of collective and mass solutions. I think many young activists, for example, are sort of disparaging of the idea of mass action, of mass solutions, of of forming a mass movement, and are more inclined toward, whether always vocalized or not, individual solutions or small group activities. Uh, And this, I think, is is a problem, a serious problem, um, and not one that that heritage has, by the way. And, And here we come to well, okay, if we're activists, we want to engage in activism. What's the criteria for judging activism? Well, the goal of activism isn't to look good. The goal of activism isn't to find friends. The goal of activism isn't to even be ethical. All those things come into it. But the goal of activism is to win, to win changes that better people's lives. And if we want to extend it to the anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-authoritarian orientation of activism, then it's to win a new society. And individual activity, generally speaking, is not going to be enough to do that. Why not? Well, because what wins change is that now, in our current circumstances, we raise costs to those who are in position to implement change that are so high that they give in. Think of a strike. What's a strike? Why does anybody engage in a strike? Well, let's say there's a demand for higher wages. The demand is being made of, now, the owners of the workplace. And what are the workers doing to try and get the owners to give them higher wages? Well, some workers might argue that what you should do is have lunch with the owner and try and make a case for the morality and the... the, you know, social utility of, of giving higher wages. But most don't think that that's going to get far because the owners have long since been socialized by their circumstances and by their activities and by their life uh, choices into being rather oblivious to all of that and into thinking, well, it's profit and the pursuit of profit that yields all good. Okay, so then what do you do? Well, if they don't understand reason and logic, and for that matter, ethical appeal, you have to use force. And what constitutes force? Well, force is going to be raising a cost that is greater in their eyes than the cost of giving in to the demand. So we're demanding $25 an hour or whatever. And the owner doesn't want to do that. Why? Because that's going to cut into their profits. That's going to reduce their profits. And also, if they're smart, because that's going to give workers more mobility, give workers more, more um, security with which to ask for more. But even before you get to that, it's going to cut into their profits. And so they don't want to do it. And they really don't want to do it, which means that they're going to fight to not do it. And so what does the, uh, do the organized workers, the union, the mass organization, what does it do? Well, let's say it strikes. Why? It's striking because it's saying to the owners, look, you don't give in to our demands and this is what's going to happen. We're going to strike. And not only that, we're going to keep striking. And not only that, we're going to become more and more militant. And not only that, this is if it's really, really effective, Look, we're reaching out to the communities around the workplace. We're reaching out to 
to to others. And and so the owners of the workplace are now under pressure because they don't like the direction in which this is going. They're afraid it's going to lead to even further losses. And moreover, their cohorts and other institutions begin to say, enough already. They're, the workers are getting, you know, so militant and so effective that it, it threatens to spread. You need to give in. And so they give in. And so what wins is raising costs. And so if we go back to the individual solutions versus collective and mass solutions, we can say that the criteria, or at least an important criteria, for judging an individual activism, active activism, or a small group active activism versus a mass uh, organization or a a very popular, uh, widely supported active activism, In either case, what we're asking is, does the activity raise consciousness in those doing it? Does the activity raise consciousness in those who perceive it, who see it in society? Does it, by raise consciousness, I mean make people more aware of how the world works and also make people want more, make people desire change? So that's one part of judging. And a second part of judging is, does the activity amass strength that is threatening uh, to whoever it is that demands are being made of, for example, the owner, or it could be the government or whatever. And that's how you judge it. And often it's, it's a little muddy in practice. So, for example, suppose we take those mass demonstrations that a lot of young people are now very skeptical of, and we say, how does it work on this score? Well, It's going to affect consciousness depending a lot on what it says, on what it broadcasts more widely, and what it says to its own participants. And it's going to raise cost, well, if it's threatening. Suppose we bring 20,000 people to a town square every other week, and every other week it's 20,000 people, same group, and every other week... The discussion is the same, and it's about only the thing being demanded. So the owner looks at this, or the government looks at this, as the case may be, or um, any other authority looks at this and says to themselves, where's this thing going? And the answer is it's going nowhere. It's staying stable, and all it means is that one has to clean up the town square after the event. There's no, it's, it has no trajectory. It's not becoming more and more threatening. Now consider instead uh, 5,000, two weeks later 10,000, two weeks later 20,000. The discussion initially is only about the demand, let's say, you know, a a raise in wages. The second week there starts to be discussion about raising wages, but also what is equitable income? Also, discussion about how come they have so much power that we have to appeal to them to do this, and so on. And so what you see is a trajectory, both in consciousness and in size and militance, which says to the owners, give in now or it's going to get worse. And at some point, they give in. Now let's take an individual action. Instead of rallies, say sabotage. So sabotage is a little different. It often is conceived in a way different from what I just said, that is increasing consciousness, increasing commitment, increasing organization, and uh, growing, sabotage is often conceived in terms of, well, 
Did the thing that we do materially hurt them? And the notion here that, that a small, an individual or a small group is going to hurt them in a way which um, uh, tells them you have to give in is, I think, very rarely relevant. And the idea that sabotage generates growth and sabotage generates new consciousness, not so much. It tends to generate a sort of a a skill at, um, you know, wrecking things. It tends to generate a kind of an in-group dynamic, um, almost a furtive and paranoid dynamic on the part of those doing it. And it generates, in the wider circles, it's horribly open to being misinterpreted in a way that generates actual distaste. Um, so what would this, this, all this say to sabotage? Well, it would say, look, if it gets to the point where you have to do sabotage, you have to think about it in terms of raising consciousness, raising numbers, and raising commitment. So maybe sabotage that's conducted um, with... Uh, Um, mass organization and mass um, uh, demonstrations at the same time. That's a whole different story. Suppose we switch over to electoral work. It's the same idea here. If If you're working on campaigns, and on the one hand, some people think, say, that winning is everything. Winning isn't everything. What's everything is increasing the number of people who are actively desirous of change and who understand what's going on and what's required. It's increasing the organizational means we have to to communicate with and to have those people manifest their will. So if you go into New Hampshire in the United States, say, during the the pre-election primary season, and so you go up there to work for a candidate... What's the criteria of success? Well, on the one hand, uh, you might think that the criteria of success is how many votes does the candidate, the Green candidate, the left candidate, even the Democratic Party but Social Democratic candidate, um, uh, win? Well, that matters, especially if they have a chance to go on and, and win office. But what also matters is, is there a... a organization on the ground set up? Are people having their consciousness expanded by their activity, by calling people, by going door to door? Are, are people reaching out? And is the, the gain of that being retained and built upon? It's always the case. What matters with ideas and with political activity is not the event itself only, but what the event itself engenders. So we have these bad and good scenarios, and uh, they're worth thinking about, I think. Now, at risk of putting my foot very firmly in my mouth, here is a controversial thought that comes to mind that springs from some of what we've been saying. First, an admission. I'm an old guy, and I got to admit, I don't understand the sexual politics, the gender politics, the trans Uh, politics, let's call it. I don't understand elements of it, significant elements of it. And my efforts to understand it, which I think are sincere, I hope they're sincere, have certainly yielded steadily more awareness, but not always steadily more 
understanding and clarity. And here's a concern that I have that I think it's worth thinking about. It doesn't, I don't know how to put this, it isn't about what people feel, and it isn't about the importance of what people feel. It's something else. And it goes sort of like this. If we go back 50 years, I guess, or less, feminism, radical feminism, said something that I think was very important. It said, look, if you're a young girl or boy, you know, say you're young, very young, and you're looking at the world, and you, know, you, you, you have a degree of awareness that's come from parents or from your interactions or whatever, you might look out there and feel the behavior patterns associated with what I'm supposed to become, a man or a woman, as they manifest in society overwhelmingly. In other words, as man as constructed in society, woman as constructed in society, you may look at that and say to yourself, I don't like that. I don't actually want that. I don't see that, um, that there's any need for, or there's any reason for, and in any event, I don't want to have my choices in life curtailed to correspond to what this abstract thing or this concrete thing out there in the world, man does or woman does, I want to do a mix of both. I want to do, I don't, or in some cases, I don't even want some of what's associated. We live in a patriarchal and a misogynist society. And there are traits of being an adult woman or man and navigating that society that are not, not nice. They are, they are, they are um, subversive of the fullest potentials of a human being. So you can imagine as a young, young boy or girl, I look at that and I say to myself, that's wrong. I don't want that. So far, so good. Now, the feminist says, great, you're right. It is wrong. The, thing that, the things that characterize being a man and that characterize being a woman, not universally, but pretty close, are restrictive of our being our own, our fullest selves. In the worst case, they are horribly, horribly destructive of us. Even in the best case, they are quite restrictive. And so, we don't want that. And so we, radical feminists, say, we have to change that. We have to change the structural relations that yield men and women, mothers and fathers, with the traits that we see in society, to instead have adult people with whatever traits they gravitate toward, but not sequestered into these two posed possibilities. Okay, I thought that was very compelling at the time. I still think it's very compelling. I think it's, it's why we have to have, let's call it a kinship revolution. It's not the whole reason, but it's a big part of the reason why. Just like getting rid of class division is a big part of the reason why. When we're getting rid of class division, it doesn't mean we're getting rid of, let's take the coordinator class and the working class. It doesn't mean we're getting rid of um, doing conceptual or doing manual, doing empowering or doing disempowering work. That's all going to remain, but it's going to be apportioned differently. And the manner in which we carry it out is going to be different. And as a result, there's not going to be this schism, this separation, this polarity between a coordinator class and a working class with a coordinator class dominant. Now let's come back to gender. There's still going to be 
caring behavior. There's still going to be, you know, kind of household educational and household functionality. And there's still going to be sexual behavior. There's going to be all these things. But we're going to want them apportioned among men and women, among people who are at birth male and people who are at birth female differently. We're going to want them apportioned in such a way that they're not a straitjacket that we have to fit into, but instead we become what we become. We choose what we choose. We wear what we want to wear. We, we do what we want to do and so on. All right, so what's my controversial point? Well, the radical feminist had a, a collective solution, let's call it, and a structural solution. They had a solution which said, let's find the structural reasons, the institutional reasons, why these polarized um, roles exist, and let's, let's, let's replace those. It seems like nowadays young people are opting for a different approach to what's essentially the same problem, I think. And the different approach is an individual solution. I'm going to change teams. I'm going to change the way I'm referred to. But what's happening is I'm changing from one role to the other. I am not obliterating the roles and replacing them because I am not obliterating the structures that produce those contrary roles. Now, I'm not saying that I think this is absolutely right or anything like it. I'm saying it's a thought that gives me pause. It concerns me that it's possible, let me give you an extreme version of this, a, a let's say, a person uh, college age experiencing social movements, a woman discovers to her dismay that inside the movement, and even more so in society at large, she is regarded with, at worst, disdain and denigration, but more likely just with insufficient dignity and attention, especially to her thoughts and her beliefs and her desires. And she looks around and realizes that, you know, men get a whole lot more respect and attention than I get. And not only that, nowadays, trans gets a whole lot more respect and attention even than men, and certainly than I get. And so I'm going to solve my problem these horrible roles by switching uh, and by being in the, in the stance, in the role, by embodying the, you know, the elements of and by stating my allegiance to a, a role, an identity, which gets respect. Now, I don't think that's the best possible. I understand it. Uh, I understand doing it. I understand. But I don't think it's the best possible solution to the problem. It's more of an individual solution than it is of a collective systemic solution. Now, maybe there's other elements of what's going on that are collective and systemic, and I'm just not properly perceiving them. Uh, and so, you know, if people want to get in touch with me about that, I would more than appreciate it because I am indeed trying to understand, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, to be honest. Okay, we're, we're getting along, but for some reason... Uh, another topic that pops into my head now, actually, I know the reason. It's because even as I'm talking to you, my email keeps bouncing one and one and one and one. And, and most of what's coming in, as with every other day, are fundraising appeals. 
And I noticed something interesting about fundraising appeals. Now, I get an awful lot of them. I don't know. Do you get 10 a day, 20 a day, 200 a day like I do? In any case, however many you get, if you pay attention to them, which I admit is a fool's behavior unless, you know, there's one that you particularly want to support or something. But in any case, if you do pay attention to them, you see a strange phenomenon, which is every once in a while, a new approach is taken. A new way of expressing, please give us some money. We're desperate. We're crying. We're at our last legs. Or we're on the verge of unprecedented success. Or, and, and particular words and so on. And what happens is when somebody makes a change like that, appealing on, on a new ground with a new kind of, of structure of words used and even pictures, others follow suit. And pretty soon everybody's doing the same thing. And then again, somebody breaks through. And, and, and it feels like a fad. It feels like a kind of a, of a fad where something is done by a certain number of people. And having done by a certain number of people, it achieves a certain weight and a certain devoid of relation necessarily to evidence. Right? It's simply the, the emergence of, of the thing and then... The support by some yields support by more, uh, but it isn't necessarily connected to success, even in the eyes of those who are doing it. It's something to think about because I think that this kind of dynamic exists, you know, not only throughout society, maybe not other societies, but certainly in the United States. Um, You can see it all over the place. You can see it on TV, for instance. A new TV show comes on and is successful. And all of a sudden, everybody is emulating it, and, and the plots are the same, and the, you know, the advertising is the same, or even the type of show is the same. So you get reality television, one of them, and then a whole lot of them. And then after a while, it burns itself out because people are tired of it and something. Ha- and, and there's this, this, this kind of follow the leader, I suppose you could call it, fadism. And I think it's something worth thinking about. And it may be even worth thinking about regarding the emergence of socialism without a whole lot of clarity about what it is, the emergence of Marx, Lenin, Trotsky reading groups, perhaps based on that somebody else is in one and that indeed um, they seem to be growing, so I must do that too because otherwise I'm not part of of the in thing. Fads. And as is my want... I'm going to end this time with a little uh, quotation. You'll see it's hardly of the sort that is sort of, I don't know what to call it, a sectarian quotation. Uh, Although I'll admit this guy is uh, somewhat of a hero of mine just because I think he he has such a knack uh, for expressing things. This came from the liner notes of one of his albums. Uh, And it's Dylan, those of you who know that I... I use his quotes often. And so let me end with this. First of all, two people get together and they want their doors enlarged. Second of all, more people see what's happening and come to help with the door enlargement. The ones that arrive, however, have nothing more than let's get these doors enlarged to say to the ones who were there in the first place. It follows then that the whole thing revolves around nothing but the door enlargement idea. Third of all, there's a group now existing, and the only thing that keeps them friends is that they all want the doors enlarged. 
Obviously, the doors are then enlarged. Fourth of all, after this enlargement, the group has to find something else to keep them together, or else the door enlargement will prove to be embarrassing. This is Mike Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.